Hey, just real quick, if you're in Australia and still have old analog clocks, it's time to upgrade so that your swimmers can see the clock. The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is now available in Oz. They're distributed by Tim Lane in Brisbane, and I've got a special deal for you. Just email him at tim at swimnerd.com, tell him Brett Hawk sent you, and get yours today for just $7.99 Aussie dollars. So email tim at swimnerd.com and order your Swim Nerd Pace Clocks today. All right, James Magnuson, how you doing, mate? I'm very good. Yourself? Doing well. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where Where are you coming from right now? I'm in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it's absolutely bucketing down rain here at the moment. We've had a week of nonstop rain, massive swell, big seas. Um, so it's crazy weather here. We're in the middle of winter. Um, so I'm feeling... Pretty thankful that I don't have to be getting up early and going and swimming at this time of the year. <laughs> yeah, but mate, what part of Sydney do you live in? I grew up in Sydney. Um, I'm in the inner west in Dremoyne. Um, oh, okay. Been here about a decade now. It was nice and close for me to Homebush, but still close to the city and the beach. So yeah, yeah, love it. Very nice. So we're going to get into kind of you, what you did in the past, but what are you doing right now? Talk to us about what's happening now in your life. Um, so lockdown during COVID has been pretty crazy for me. Um, myself and a couple of friends started a gym equipment business, um, manufacturing, distributing, supplying gym equipment for, for people, um, at home. And, and now we're doing commercial gym fit outs as well. Um, so this past sort of three months has probably been a few of the busiest of my life. Actually, it's been crazy, but, um, really? it's been something, yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, I, and I've been, in and around the industry my whole life without taking too much of a notice um, of, of what sort of goes into um, gym equipment and that kind of thing. So it's been really fun and uh, it's been keeping me busy um, while the, the, the rest of the country has been in lockdown. Well, tell, tell us the name. You may as well get into it. What's the name of the company? And uh, uh, so the, people... the company's called, yeah, the company's called Habitual Equipment. So for anyone in Australia, we're available Australia-wide. Mm-hmm. Check us out at habitualequipment.com.au. Um, those guys in the US and around the world, hopefully we'll be opening up some distribution channels soon. Awesome. And what exactly is the equipment that you're selling? So pretty much your core gym equipment, um, bars, plates, dumbbells, benches, rigs, cages, um, kettlebells, everything you kind of need to set up yourself at home to have, have that full, um, mm. uh, get up. And then mm-hmm. for gyms, we do the full full gym setup um apart from that cardio equipment that's kind of a specialist area but um yeah all, all the cool stuff mate that's amazing that's very cool and where are you getting the stuff made at we go from china um nice. so it's pretty common uh, most of the gym equipment in the world is made in the one province over there in china so we've got similar similar manufacturers to the biggest uh, companies in the world um took us a long time to set up those supply lines those manufacturers there's a lot of work in product development. That's been my job in the business is product development. So how do I want the bar to feel? What do I want the plates to look like? How do I want everything to kind of function? And uh, coming from that elite sport background, it's given me a really good base to kind of know what I like and, and what works best um, in the gym and, and at home. That's awesome, mate. Well, congratulations. I'm very happy for you. That sounds awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well, mate, listen, I've had uh, a bunch of the fastest swimmers in history on the podcast lately. I've had Popoff and I've had uh, 
you know, Thorpey and Eamon Sullivan and Michael Clem and Grant Hackett and all, you know, some of the top guys and, and I'm hoping I'm, I'm missing a few people, but um, I've had some really interesting conversations. And so, you know, what I'm really interested in is um, your analysis of yourself on, on, you know, your wins and your losses and your successes and your failures, you know, maybe we can kind of dig into those a little bit because there's so much to learn from all of it, you know, like, you know, what made you great? And, and then, you know, where did you go wrong at times? And what have you learned? And what have you learned on reflection? Um, just maybe through age and maybe just looking back on your career. So I'd, I'd love to dig into that a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, 100%. Let's do it. Awesome, mate. So listen, you know, you, from what I could tell you, you, you burst onto the scene kind of in 2010. I didn't know much about you before then. Um, what, what was going on, you know, previous to that? You know, where did you start swimming? And how did you get into it? Yeah, so I grew up in a, a country town called Port Macquarie. It's about um, five hours north of Sydney. Um, swim from a young age, um, but was never kind of a prodigious talent or anything like that. Um, so like you said, not a lot of people knew my name. Um, around sort of 16-ish, I started winning nationals hmm. and getting picked on those junior Australian teams. Um, but kind of what happened in um, Port Macquarie was the pool was closed during winter. Um, so I'd swim from sort of September till about April. And then I couldn't swim um, during the winter months. So I'd play rugby league. Um, and so that probably held my swimming back a little bit and, and um, kind of didn't um, allow me to be recognized on that open stage. Um, then I moved down in 2018. I finished school um, as an 18-year-old. Moved uh, 2010, sorry, as an 18-year-old. Moved down to Sydney to swim with Brand Best. And uh, to be honest, we didn't do a lot in terms of workload differently to what I'd been doing in Port Macquarie. It was just a few things tinkering with technique and race plan, and that kind of gave me that extra um, few percent that I needed to to make it onto that first Australian team. So. I think that the hard work I'd been doing already, um, I didn't have access to great facilities. I didn't have strength and conditioning or diet or sleep or anything like that down pat. So I was very raw. Um, so th that first initial exposure that I got to high performance when I moved down to Sydney um, kind of gave me that little boost that I needed to get under the Australian team. Yeah, mate, I didn't know much about Brent Best either until you, kind of you came along and you were having success with him. So uh, from what I understand, he, he's very scientific and, and technical and those sorts of things and, and, a, and a great coach. What made you uh, go to him initially? Yeah, so as I was coming up to the end of school, I probably had three options. Uh, the first one was to go to Canberra, to the AIS. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did go down there and, and kind of um, check it out a few times. Um, over the years um, wasn't for me um, yeah. that kind of setup um, I think the restrictive um, kind of living um, scenario for me wasn't the right fit mm -hmm. so for me I, I wanted to come to Sydney the two choices were um, Sydney Uni um, or Macquarie Uni um, Macquarie Uni told me they just found this brand new coach called Brant Best um, so I came down to Sydney met with Brant and uh I remember sitting with my parents and Brent and uh, he was kind of explaining a little bit of the experience he'd had. So he was an assistant coach to Stefan Vidmar, mm -hmm. uh, who'd coached uh, Libby Trickett, Liesl Jones, Christian Spranger, um, Mel Schlanger, a lot of big names up there. 
So he'd been exposed to that sort of environment for some time, but hadn't really had any big name swimmers of his own. And when I came down and met with Bran in 2009, he said, if you come down to Sydney and train with me, I'm very confident that I'll get you to an Olympic Games. Um, just having seen a little bit of my age group swimming stuff. And again, I was very raw. Um, when I came down and saw him, I wasn't even training at the time because it was winter. And that was probably the first time I'd ever kind of considered the possibility that I could go to an Olympic Games. Um, and that kind of confidence that he instilled in me in that meeting got me across the line and I made the decision, I'm going to come to Sydney, I'm going to train with Brant Best. Um, and, and, you know, that was probably one of the best decisions that I made um, in my career or in my life. You know, that was, that was a life-changing moment for sure. But he, he kind of spotted that um, something in me that, that he thought he could work with. And, and you know, we, we formed a great relationship after that. Yeah, mate, it's, it's nice when you can, you know, shine some light on, on your coach that had an impact on you. I just did a podcast with Brian Sutton. I know, I know you know Brian, and uh, he was yeah. my coach. And, you know, I was able to, to, to tell him the impact he had on me and, and the changes um, that he was able to make and, and get me on my first Olympic team in 2000. So, you know, people like that have a huge impact. But what was uh, Brant doing, doing well? Like, what, what are some of the things that appealed to you and, and really clicked with you that he was doing? Um, I think everything that we did with Brant had a purpose. So I feel like a lot of the time in swimming, we just do things because that's what's always been done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, start of the season, you start punching out those 70, 80 kilometer weeks. Why do we do it? Oh, well, that's what's historically always been done, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd often find myself in, you know, in lane two doing the same thing as the 1500 freestyler in lane three. <laughs> yeah. And I always really struggled with that concept of, oh, it's just what you got to do in swimming. You've got to do the Ks. You've got to do these things that has historically always been done. And Brant really changed um, that outlook for me. Um, everything we did, every session we did had a purpose, had an outcome. And he would tell me that the purpose of that session or the outcome, the desired outcome at the start of every session. Mm. So I really bought into everything that we did in the pool. There was never really a lap that I did with Brant that felt like it was pointless mm. um, or, or, or felt like it was... Um, just empty kilometers mm. um, and that really resonated with me um, the other big thing that, that happened when I came down to Brant um, so I went into my first Commonwealth Games trials in 2010 um, I was living on campus at university I'd just done the, the O week and partied for a week straight and then got sick for about six weeks leading into this Commonwealth Games trials so I didn't swim for six weeks went into my first Commonwealth Games trials and Brent said to me before the, before the 100 freestyle, he said, look, you're pretty unfit at the moment. Um, you haven't got a lot of speed. Uh, I'm going to give you a race plan here and I need you just to stick to this race plan. And so he said, just go out that first 50 metres, nice and easy. He said, if you turn last, that's absolutely fine. I don't care if the rest of the field's a body length ahead of you. Don't get carried away that first 50. Take it really easy. As soon as you turn and push off that wall for the second 50, I want you to sprint full effort sprint, um, but breathing, breathing twos. So I was kind of like, ah, like, I don't know, you know, that, that's going to take a, a, a lot of um, confidence to kind of go out that slow. But he said, just trust me, go out really slow that first 50. We used to call it walk out, run home. 
Mm. So I went into the heats and I was like, you know, I, I don't have much choice. I'm pretty unfit. I've never really had a lot of speed over the 50. So I went out easy, sprinted home, qualified like second for the semis. I was like, wow, that kind of worked. Did the same thing in the semifinals. And all of a, all of a sudden found myself in my first uh, national final, having done this walkout run home. <laughs> and I just did the same thing again in that final in, in, in the Com Games trials. I went out really slow, turned eighth. I think Eamon was a body length and a half in front of me. And I just sprinted on the way home and overtook um, everyone but Eamon, I think. Um, and all of a sudden, there I was on the Australian team. And that was the first time I'd ever tried that race plan. Oh, wow. um, yeah, yeah. And that kind of became a little bit of a staple for the rest of my career then. Um, that, that sort of strong second 50 and, and what we always spoke about was walk out, run home. Wow, that's incredible. That's a great story. I love it. Um, I can't believe that you didn't train it multiple times before you tried it at the trials and had success <laughs> with it, but that's, that's awesome. But, um, you know, obviously you're coming off the back end of the suit era, you know, where, where we had these incredible suits in 2009 and then 2010, I believe we went back to shorts. So did you have a chance to swim in, in the, in the super suits or, or that didn't play into your mind at that time? No, I never got to swim in them. Um, probably two reasons there. The first reason, uh, so in Australia, we banned them in age group swimming um, because there was a number of sponsored age group athletes who were able to wear these suits and other kids couldn't. So they saw it as an unfair advantage. So in the age group swimming, the suits were banned. Um, so I never got exposed to them in that way. And then when I went up to swim in, in, in the opens, these suits were like a thousand bucks. Um, yeah. So we could, we could, uh, we couldn't afford to be buying these thousand dollar suits every time I had a big competition coming up. So yeah. those arena and jacket and those super suits, I, I never got to wear something I always look back on, um, particularly when I was at my prime, I would have loved to have just chucked one of those suits on just to, just to break that world record and say, you know, that, um, that I could have done it. Um, Cause I was right there with those shorts, but um, you know, it's, it's, um, something that I never got the chance to do. Um, but I, I think for me coming through as an 18 year old in 2010, that was a really opportune time. Um, two things happened that year. So they got rid of the super suits and they brought in the kicker on the mm. block. Yeah. Um, but I had historically done a two footed start, two foot, two feet forward. Yep. Um, the one that sort of Thorpey fell in the pool with in, uh, in 2004. Yeah. I actually used to have a pretty, bad, a pretty bad rate of disqualification. Same reason. You sort of start to tip, as they said, take your marks. And it was like a 50-50 <laughs> proposition whether you'd fall start or not. So um, two things came in. They got rid of suits, which was fine for me because I'd never worn one anyway. So I, I didn't lose any sort of confidence mm. um, coming into racing that, that open um, age group. And yeah. they brought in these pickers. So Brent taught me to do a uh, track start when I came down to Sydney and my start improved, um, you know, out of yeah. the blue with yep. this kicker. So it was kind of a perfect formula for me. It brought the rest of the world, I think, back to me a little bit. Yeah. Could yeah. Um, I have come in in 2010, whacked a suit on and gone 47 low to qualify for, for the Commonwealth Games? No way. But could I come in as an 18-year-old with the leveling, uh, the playing field level and go sort of 49 low, 48 high, yeah, that, that was doable. So that was a, a perfect storm for me to allow me to, to get onto the team. 
Yeah. Mate, a couple of things. Listen, you would have gone 45 in the suit, so you would have destroyed the world <laughs> record. And um, you, uh, you, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, there was a lot of people that psychologically it affected them. They went from these suits back to the shorts. And um, I, I was coaching a number of these athletes that really struggled with it psychologically because um, it was just a totally different feeling. And then here you are coming along and you're having success, um, you know, walking out and running home and, and just destroying people. At, at the back end of your swims and, and killing them psychologically. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was a perfect storm. I think they were in, in a bad place and you're in a good place and it just worked out in your favor. But look, there's, there's uh, nothing to take away from the fact that you ended up swimming 47 mids and 47 lows on multiple occasions, which is just extraordinary. So I certainly want to get into that a little bit, but, um, you know, like you said, you finished third at the trials in 2010, um, and then 2011, just a year later, you're, you're world champion. So it's like, what, what the hell happened between 2010 and 2011? And by the way, you might not know this, but you're a super freak talent. You know, <laughs> you have a, you have a crazy talent. Like the, your rate of improvement is, is insane. Did you ever, did you ever think that of yourself or did you, what were you thinking of yourself? Were you just think, you know, I'm just a hard worker or what was it? um yeah not really so like like i said growing up it, it was i liked swimming um but i also um liked other sports um i knew i wanted to be a professional athlete one day but i didn't think swimming was ever going to be possible um i think the thing for me that changed between 2010 and 2011 was essentially I turned into a professional swimmer mm. no longer was swimming something that I fit in around my my day and, and my routine it became how does my lifestyle adapt to be a professional swimmer mm. um, so you know I started um, doing weights I started eating properly I started recovering properly all of a sudden I had this huge support network of people around me and that was always mind-boggling to me even right up towards the end of my career is, uh, you know, as you, when you stand on the blocks um, at an Olympics or a world championships, there's just one swimmer there. But you've got this support team of, you know, up to a dozen people behind you. Mm. And I couldn't believe it when I moved to Sydney that all these people worked day in, day out for my performance. Mm. Um, and so I always felt indebted to those people. And um, part of my work ethic was driven from the fact that um, I, I didn't want to let any of these people down. They were putting all this time and effort into me. And so I felt like I, I owed it to them um, to get those results. Um, but yeah, so 2010 to 2011, um, the, there was one actually, there was one defining moment for me um, in 2010, and that was at the Commonwealth Games. Hmm. So Pampax, uh, I swam a 48.8 or 48.9. And pretty much cemented myself as the second best um, sprint freestyler in Australia behind Eamon. Mm -hmm. uh, then for, for whatever reason, going into the Commonwealth Games, they decided to give the individual swim to Eamon and I want to say Kyle Richardson or Tommaso de Songa. Actually, they gave three individual spots. Yep. Uh, Eamon Sullivan, Kyle, uh, Kyle Richardson and Tommaso de Songa. Uh, so I was like... Well, I've just gone 48.8 and you don't even put me in the individual event. Mm. Okay, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I'll take that on the chin. We go into the relay, 4x100 uh, freestyle relay. I anchored the team. 
or kind of, we were in second when I dove in. Um, I swam the fastest split out of the whole Australian team and we got the gold medal. And um, so they said, to, they kind of said to me, you know, keep training the rest of the week. So this was on the first night. They said that the last night of the meet is the, uh, the last day of the meet is the medley relay. Keep training. Um, we might put you in the heat of the 4x1 um, medley relay because you've had the fastest split. So I was like, beautiful, um, you know, I want this. This is, as an Australian, you know, at a Commonwealth Games, it's, it's a really strong medal chance. Yeah. I kept training all week, kept eating right. The boys in the 100 freestyle uh, individually had uh, just a really poor uh, meet. I think none of them even went sub 49. Mm. Um, so I'm sitting there thinking, this is perfect. I've just gone a 48 low split in this relay. I'm in for sure. Mm. Uh, I got to the day of the of the four by one medley relay and uh i think it was grant stolwinder um who was who was uh, kind of looking after me came and told me he said you're not you're not swimming in the uh medley relay um we've we've chosen uh, one of the other boys <laughs> and i was like oh okay i guess you know well what can i do about it and they said we want you to do a time trial um just to see where you're at because you've been training all week and I've always had a pretty strong personality. I've always spoken my mind. And I kind of, I kind of told Stolly, you know, I'm not swimming a time trial and um, I'm, I'm never going to be in this position again. And I went back to Brent and I told him, actually, I think I called Brent while I was over there. And I said, you won't, you won't believe what's happened. Like, you know, I've swum the fastest 100 free out of all these guys. And they've just completely left me out of this team. <laughs> And Brent said to me, and it's something that always stuck with me, he said, there's only one way to make sure that this never happens again. And that is to make sure that you're always the fastest um, at our trials at the major meet and they have no, have no option but to pick you first. Yeah. So I came, back to, I came back to Australia and my whole focus leading into that next year, it's nothing to do with the world championships um was nothing to do with world rankings or anything like that my sole focus was to win the national championships um was to beat Eamon who was sort of the top at the time and to leave no doubt in anyone's mind who the first person picked in that relay team was going to be <laughs> the next year at the world championships and and that drove me um really hard um and we used to train at Homebush and um, Grant Stolwinder's squad would be on one side of the pool so Eamon, Jeff Hugel, Matt Abood, Andrew Lauderstein, Libby Trickett and on the other side of the pool were all these young up-and-comers, you know, with Brent Best, um, who, you know, of those five of us ended up going to the Olympic Games in 2012. And I think only, um, only one or two of Stolly's swimmers. So we used to look across the pool at these guys and see, um, see them every day. And, uh, and that used to drive me. I used to see Eamon every day. And Eamon was uh, notoriously... Um, not fast in season yeah so i'd see him doing stuff in training and i'd be listening to what times he would do and then you know i'd say to brent get me on the blocks right now i'm going to beat that time and <laughs> and it's stuff like that like i was doing it um every week um and my sole goal my sole um outcome was to win that national championships and 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 i did um and i i went i think 48 2 or 48 3 and in my mind, I was like, wow, that is, uh, that, that is somewhere near my potential now. I, I mm. think I'm reaching the limit of, of how fast I can go at 48.2 or 48.3. <laughs>
<laughs> That's funny. I love it, by the way. I think it's amazing. And, and I'm so glad you shared that because I think there's, there's so much to learn there. But um, you obviously do well with a chip on your shoulder. Hey, is that, is that the thing? <laughs> that's the thing that's always driven you, that chip on your shoulder? Yeah, a little bit. Look, I think that's something that probably I found harder later in my career when um, life became more of um, the haves rather than the have nots. Um, it became a little bit harder for me to, to drive myself, um, day in, day out to have that same hunger. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's probably something that comes from growing up in, in the country and, and always kind of, um, doing without for, for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it used, I always used to look at the, when we'd come to Sydney, to race and and some of my competitors would pull out a new suit for each final that we'd have hmm. or you know have the latest goggles the latest caps or um, be talking about um, you know training at Homebush or anything like that my, my goal in life was when I was younger was always to swim at Homebush because I'd seen the Sydney Olympics and I thought I'd love to swim at that pool one day I just need hmm. to to qualify for something so I can go down there and swim so it all, I think yeah it, it was always a case of um i always had something to strive for when i was younger and and that always drove me to to be better um and it, it uh, probably one of the things i found hardest was when there's no longer anyone to to chase um and you're no longer the the hunter you become the hunted um that was probably one of the things i found the hardest in the yeah, sport sure well, let's talk about um, just your strategy in terms of the way that you swam your 100 then, especially, you know, early on, you know, you set a standard that was um, w- was something that no one else in the world could really handle or, or hang with. And that's obviously, you know, going out strong and going out fast, but not, not burning yourself up, you know, being behind at the 50 and then just destroying people. Um, you know, what was the, what was the training like for that? How did, how did you prepare for that? Um, especially like in that second 50, your legs were just incredible. Like you had crazy legs. Um, is, is that something that you, um, you know, specifically trained for, uh, over time? Yeah, this will probably sound, um, pretty crazy. And to me, even in hindsight, um, probably the, the bread and butter set for me, um for training for my 100 freestyle was 350s freestyle on 10 minutes uh so i'd swim a 50 free at 100 meter stroke rate breathing twos um and then i'd have 10 minutes rest before the next one and then like, what I'd would you again. go what, what would you go on is that is that from a push or a dive push okay um, what would you go on that anywhere between 22 9 to 23.5 shit you're pushing Um, 22.9s wow yeah yeah so that was that was probably the biggest feather in my cap when it came to training so honestly like i was not great at kick not great at distance sets not great at short rest stuff um you know i lactate pretty high pretty quickly as well um but the thing i could always do was sit at that sort of 46 to 47 stroke rate breathe twos and push 22.9 um in training yeah that was that was the one thing that always used to kind of 
impress um, other coaches or other swimmers when, mm. when they came and trained with us. Um, so it was just super specific. And I was always sitting at that same stroke rate. We'd allow a little buffer of, say, 44 to 48 for that stroke rate. Mm. Um, I'd always breathe twos. Um, and I'd always have nice light hands. Um, and, and we used to talk a lot about being at seven, um, seven out of 10 RPE. Um, and that was, that was my bread and butter. Um, we spent a lot of, a lot of time doing, um, early season, doing a bit more 200 work. Um, so sort of say eight fifties on a minute, um, holding 25 point um to 26 point around there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i had some really good 200 meter swimmers in my squad which which helped me i always used to try and um you know hold hold it with those guys or beat those guys um but yeah it was just always really specific stuff so when i hit the water in that 100 freestyle i knew exactly what i should feel like um and exactly where my stroke should be um I kind of knew based off what arm that I'd turn on in the race, how many strokes I'd taken in that first lap. Mm. So we used to try and take the same amount of strokes in that, I think it was 31 strokes on the way down, 37 strokes on the way back. Um, so when I got into my groove and, and there were years there, I think 2000, late 2013, early 2014, I swam a bunch of 47s in a row. Every time I hit the water, I was swimming 47 points. And every race, if you looked at the analysis, was the exact same, the exact same stroke rate, the exact same number of strokes, the exact same number of breaths. Um, I just got in a real groove where um, the performance kind of took care of itself because I was so familiar. I'd done it so many times in training. Mm. Um, then a few of the sets, uh, we, used to, we used to do some pre-fatigue stuff for that back-end work. So a set we used to like to do was 3.15s max um swim through the 50 and then a 50 straight off into a 50 push max or a 50 off a turn we'd always be aiming for 24 5 or faster on those back end pre-fatigued 50s um so again really specific stuff um we'd, we'd swim really fast at least four times a week i'd say um so out of you know in my peak um training i'd be doing seven sessions a week um that was the max i ever did with brent was seven pool sessions okay of those of those four would be fast the other three would be really easy Mm. like really slow really recovery um but the thing that was always important was that when i turned up for speed work that that i was ready to go um and there was plenty of sessions where i'd get in warm up brent would have a look at me and he'd say, all right, James, get out, go home. We're going to try this again tomorrow. You're not there. And so we never did a session where I looked fatigued or my stroke was off and Brand said, let's just push through and try and get this done. It was, you're not in the right space right now. Get out, go home, come back tomorrow, and, and we'll do it when, you're, when you can swim the way we want you to. So I became so familiar with that feeling of swimming essentially what was 47.100 freestyle. Mate, I love this, by the way. You know, this is, this is what I'm all about. Um, I, did, I did very similar things with Cesar Cielo, you know, when I was coaching him. It was, it was very, very similar. You know, if you're not ready for speed today, let's not do it. And, you know, let's be specific and, and we're going to swim really fast. We're going to swim really specific. And then we're going to swim really slow and really technical and you're going to look good. Um, 
and that's the way we train. And, and I'm, and I'm preaching that right now because I'm hearing it from so many people. I'm hearing Caleb Dressel's doing some of the fastest swims he's ever done in practice coming, coming out of kind of a quarantine phase or a, a phase where he's been, you know, able to do less than he normally would. I'm, I'm hearing it from, from people all around the world, actually. Now they're doing some time trials and they're putting suits on and they're swimming faster than they've ever swum. And, and people are wondering why. And it's like, because we're, we're able to do very specific work and then recover and rest. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's exactly what I did with Caesar back in the day. And, um, and I think that more and more coaches need to catch on to this fact that specific work and, and recovery is so important to high quality performance. And I love the fact that you said you just felt comfortable behind the blocks when you, when it was time to race because you'd done it so many times in practice, you know, you're not just yeah, swimming and up think, and down the pool. Well, I'm not, I, I don't know too much about the, the kind of um, coaching philosophies and stuff in the U S but in Australia, I see so many young swimmers come through and they've got natural speed and natural talent. Mm-hmm. And that speed just gets crunched out of them with kilometer after kilometer after kilometer. Mm-hmm. And everyone keeps saying, oh, these young kids, they, just, they need to swim 400s. They need to swim 200s. We need to get more distance in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wasn't a top-end sprinter, um, but I had enough speed that the whole reason that I finished fast, that second 50, and everyone must have thought it was that I was um, – superiorly fit that I was so much fitter than everyone else that I could finish so fast that last 25 meters. I probably had a good um, buffer to lactic acid in some ways and was able to push through that. But the main thing that got me through that last 25 meters was that I had that easy speed on the way down. And I think easy speed on that first 50 is so undervalued and the only way that speed gets easy is to increase your overall output uh, or ability to, to produce speed. If I can swim at 21.5, then that first 50 at 22.2 feels easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for some reason, everyone used to just think, oh, it must be because he's super fit that he can finish that last 25 meters so strong. Yeah, I was fit to an extent, but I'm sure there was fitter swimmers in that race. Um, that, that I was um, beating. The, the thing was that first 50 metres, I was so relaxed, that 22 low um, feet on felt so easy that it wasn't necessarily fitness the last 25 metres. I literally just had the energy to burn because I'd taken it easy on the way down. Mm. And I see so many coaches just smashing into their swimmers. We've got to be fitter. We've got to be fitter. You can't finish that last 25 metres of the 100 if you're not fit. Well, really, if you're super fast, then you can take it nice and easy on the way down. It's less about fitness on the way back and more about that speed that's still available to you. Mm, mate, I love it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, imagine how I felt. This is, this is you in 2010, 2011, 2012. I swam in the year 2000 with uh, Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett and Michael Clem, like, And all I did was swim a 53. Imagine the way they looked at me. Um, you know, I was, I was the black sheep for sure and uh, and i was i was i was screaming these things back then and people thought i was mad um you know so i'm i'm really appreciative of you sharing that with us now because i think look we're still we're still in a time where coaches are just afraid to um coach the way that you're talking about you know 
and and it's all about kilometers unfortunately and look the, the u.s system isn't much different to the to australia i think i think they kind of mirror each other in that sense and there's a lot of coaches that are just beating the hell out of their athletes and it's all about mileage and um and, and i don't believe in that at all so i appreciate you sharing that um you know let's talk about uh what, what it was like to win your first world title then what's it like to be world champion in, in 2011 well, how old were you at that point I think I turned 21 um, just before the meet started. Mm. Um, oh, no, 20, sorry. 20, yeah, 2011. Yeah, I turned 20 just before the meet started. Uh, I think I went into that meet. Um, I got pneumonia. Um, so, that, again, it's in our, our winter, um, the World Championship. So, I, I got pneumonia leading into that meet. Mm. And uh, I had about six weeks, I think, out of the water. And that turned out to be the best taper of my <laughs> life. Um, I came out the back of that pneumonia. So it was touch and go. Uh, I think at one stage, the, the team doctors were saying, ah, oh, he can't come. Uh, so I, I missed the staging camp. You know how we always do a staging yeah. camp. Yeah. I missed the staging camp. which uh, like, I wasn't too disappointed about it. I don't love those things. Um, I missed the staging camp. Brent and I flew straight into Shanghai to, to race. And uh, right up until probably three days before the meet started, Brent was saying, oh, look, it's good that you're here. You get to soak up the atmosphere, but you're probably not going to swim. You know, let's be realistic. You're probably not going to swim. Got to about three days out before the meet. And I said, Brent, like, I feel great. I'm jumping out of my skin. I feel good. Let me go. Let me swim. Mm. And uh, the coaches kind of said, oh, look, we don't know. And, and we're not going to swim you in the heats of the 4x100 freestyle relay. We're going to rest you so, so that you're fresh at night. Okay. And they said, how do you feel about this nighttime swim? And I said, look, I feel good. Um, and they said, all right, you know, we usually anchor you. Um, so you bring, bring this relay team home strong. You're the fastest um, back-end swimmer, so we want you to anchor the team. Mm. And I sort of said to Brand, I said, look, I feel really good. Put me up front. Um, like, let's lead this thing off. Mm. Um, and see how we go. And uh, that, that in, in that relay, I swam 47.9. I was so excited that relay because um, Elaine Bernard and Michael Phelps were leading off their respective uh, relay teams for America and, and France. I was like, oh my God, I finally get to race like these <laughs> um, guys who are legends in my eyes. You know, I, I mm. watched Elaine Bernard at the 2008 Olympics and mm. him, I'd watched Michael Phelps, obviously. Um, so I was really excited to race those guys. And then what that first night of the relay did, it gave me this crazy momentum. Like everything just started flowing after that. I swam 47.4. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone was expecting me to win. There was all this pressure. There was all this expectation. But I just got in this really good groove of I was comfortable in my swimming. Um, my warm-ups felt good. My swim downs felt good. The heats felt easy. Everything just really flowed that week. Um, to the point where, you know, I swam in that final and um, executed my race plan as, as well as I have in any race in, mm. in my whole career under, you know, what, what's a lot of pressure and expectation in a, in a world championship final. So um, it, was, it was surreal. The whole thing was surreal. I look back on it now and I was like, wow, you're 20 years old and you just walked out there in front of the world and, and smashed it. Like I, I can't kind of comprehend how I had the, the, the confidence or the bravado at that time when I'd achieved nothing mm. to just go out there and, and take on the world. But um, 
somehow that just kind of that that week flowed really nicely and, and I look back on that and that's probably standing on that block um, on, on that podium at our 2011 world champs is probably um, the proudest moment of, of my career and a moment that I felt like um, kind of um, justified the hard work and the sacrifices and all the people that had put time and effort into me up until um, that point in my career. Yeah. Mate, well, I remember watching it at home and just uh, watching that 100 free and thinking, wow, this is, this is the new kid on the block. This, this kid's a freak. This, this kid's going to be unbeatable for a, a long time, you know, and um, the way that you swam that was so dominant. I, I didn't see anybody swimming the 100 freestyle the way you were swimming it. You, were, you just crush people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things were clicking for sure at that mean, and it's, not, it's nice when you can look back and, and you – can feel that feeling again you're like oh wow that, that was pretty special but um i guess at the time you think it's it's just going to last forever and, and every time you swim is going to be like that you know um yeah. i've certainly had those moments but um you know so let's let's talk about kind of going into 2012 obviously um you know you swam the the aussie trials and i believe at the aussie trials you were 47.1 is that correct yeah 47.1 um so that was um the fastest that i ever swam um, throughout my career and the, the training times and stuff maybe so I've got, I've got a lot of confidence off the back of that 2011 world world champs um, and some of the, that's that's when I first started dropping like those 22 nines in training mm. um, and that's when I've I, I really started swimming um, probably at another level again I felt um, in, in training leading into those um, uh, Olympic trials here in Australia. Um, that, that was certainly um, a, another step up again from the World Championships the year before. So you guys never, you know, you never really fell into the trap of like, okay, we're forty-seven four. Let's let's add two more workouts, or let's add, you know, another gym session, or whatever it is, and let, let's add more and more and more. Like the normal thinking would be, well, if we're here and we do more, we can be here. You know, is is that the way you thought, or it was just like, hey, let's stick to the plan and keep doing what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember um, in 2011, Brent saying, you know, this is this is all just preparation for, for what's to come for the rest of your career. So this is the building blocks, and and we kept that same format. Um, for the whole time I was with Brent, anyway, throughout my career, seven sessions, a couple of gym, um, you know, kept the same support team around me. So, yeah, nothing changed from 2011 to 2012. Beautiful, beautiful. So it was just really confidence and it was just maybe some consistency in practice where you were hitting things more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I knew going into that trials that I was going to swim fast. Um, 47 one I, I, I don't know if I expected that or not but after that 47 one um, you know I was quite confident that I could go faster again um, but you know as I'm sure we'll talk about in a second I didn't quite get there yeah well what was the taper like for that talk, talk to me about that the 47 one what did you actually do for taper during that period I got sick again um, <laughs> you sound like Eamon Sullivan right now <laughs> yeah it was weird so early on in my career I used to sit down around sort of 92 kilos I was really lean um, and yeah I probably wasn't as robust an athlete as I was um, sort of later in my career my body was fine like I never had I was one of those guys and again you know this came back to bite me later in my career but you know 
I'd rock up to training and I was either ready to go fast or I wasn't. There was no, I didn't used to do a lot of stretching or, you know, dry land work or anything like that. I started to implement that probably um, 2013 onwards. Um, so my body was always just ready to go. But um, yeah, I had a, a, a few chronic um, lung problems. So I'd had pneumonia, I'd had pleurisy, I had a couple of lung problems. And when I'd go, when I'd start taper, I always, when I was quite young, used to be at risk of getting sick. Those things would just pop up. I think when you're in hard work, your body just holds itself together. And then you relax and go into taper. And it's so common for athletes to get sick or, or injured in taper. So I remember going into, that, um, going into that trials again. I got sick. I was like, ah, this is annoying. Like this might be the thing that stops me going quicker than 47.4. But I've done the work. And I remember I had... Um, Jim Fowley from the New South Wales Institute of Sport went out and bought all these humidifiers and I had all these humidifiers in my room <laughs> before I raced, trying to keep my lungs open and trying to keep my, my breathing good. And then I remember afterwards, actually after that thing, um, people kept trying to get me to put humidifiers in my room every time we went to a, <laughs> to a meeting. So I thought that might have been part of the secret. But yeah, I, felt, I, got, I got a bit sick again. Um, I wasn't feeling that good. I actually didn't even feel that good in the warm up for that race, um, for that 47 one. Mm. Um, I think I pushed like a 23, 23.3 or 23.4. And I remember thinking, ah, I felt a bit hard, like didn't, wasn't flowing that well in the warm up. Um, but then in the race, um, it was good because it was a really fast race. Um, we had eight Aussies, I think, go like 48.8 or quicker. Mm. So it was a really quick race. So it pushed me along. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the work that I'd done just kind of um, really showed itself in, in that race. And again, because of the 2011 I had, it was one of those races that I went into where I felt like it actually wasn't much pressure on me um, because I, I had such high expectations of myself in that race that from there I was almost starting to look forward, look ahead to the Olympics a bit. Um, so, you know, there wasn't, I didn't feel there was much pressure or expectation on me in that particular race. And that kind of really freed me up to swim fast. That's interesting. You, you said a couple of things that, um, that I'm interested in. I'll kind of dig into a little bit, but, um, one of them was, you know, you didn't feel great in warm up, but then you go and have your fastest swim of your life, 47 one. So what can we, what can we take from that? What can swimmers learn from that? You know, it's, it's not about necessarily, having the best warm-up that means you're going to have the best swims, right? Yeah. As swimmers, we overanalyze everything. Um, you know, you, you slip on a turn in, in the warm-up and then you come, you approach that wall in a race and you're thinking about, oh, what did I do in warm-up? Mm -hmm. Rather than remember those thousand perfect turns I hit in training in the last six months. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, we, we do read way too much into how we feel in that warm-up. Um, you've really just got to let your body express itself in that race. But the one thing that will hold you back when you race is your mind. And if you go into that race thinking, you know, I'm underdone or I didn't feel good in warm up, they're just excuses that you can give yourself for not swimming fast. Whereas if you go into that race thinking, I'm going to give my body every chance to express how fast I am, how well I've been training, more often than not, it will take over and do the job for you because you've done those repetitions so many times. So, yeah, for me in that in that warm up, um, I didn't feel good, but I went into that race expecting to win, expecting to swim fast, and and 
kind of giving myself every opportunity to do so. Mm, man, I love it. Awesome. Um, and, and the other thing you said was, you know, you're looking f- towards the Olympics. One of the mistakes I made as an athlete, my first Olympics was, you know, the biggest event for me was making the Olympic team. And then when I got to the Olympics, it was, it was almost like I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that big stage because it was all about just making the team. And, and I got caught up in that. So to me, it sounds like even, even at your first games, it was like, I'm looking towards, this is a stepping stone into something bigger, which is, which is the games, which I'm looking forward to, you know? Yeah, it's interesting throughout my whole career. So 2010 was different. It was all about making the team. From that year onwards, I never actually put a lot of importance on those trials. And, and sometimes we wouldn't even do full tapers for those trials. Mm. And it actually always freed me up to swim quite well at those trials because I never felt any pressure or any kind of, um, I've got to be in the top two to, to make the team. It was always, um, let's get out here, let's swim really fast. You know, you've been training well. And the thing, that I always loved about trials was that, that it was in the middle of summer for us. Mm. So I was probably, you know, doing some training outside. I was feeling good about myself um, and, you know, it was warm weather. So I always felt a bit more limber and I'd always just go into those trials with a real mindset of let's see where I'm at. Let's see how fast I can go rather than I must get top two here to qualify um, for, for the major meet. Um, and I think that always allowed me to swim um, quite freely at trials, whereas a lot of people, um, like you, like you said about yourself, kind of heaps that extra pressure and expectation on themselves for those trials because they all they were thinking about was those top two. Mm-hmm. When you start thinking about top two, you start looking at the lanes beside you and and who you need to beat rather than really freeing yourself up to swim fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now. Did you, uh, you know, the US had a different system. They were like more of the four weeks out for the Olympics. You had a couple of moments in your career where you swam super fast at the trials and not as fast at the, at the bigger meets, let's say. And, and one of those instances was in 2012 at the Olympics. Um, was it a disadvantage for you, you think, in terms of like having that five months rather than what the US system was doing and, and what Australia is doing now? It's more of a month out. Yeah, so I think we made a pretty fundamental mistake in 2012. So I'd swum fast in 2011 um, off, um, you know, a pretty rough preparation. Like I said, I got sick mm-hmm. um, and, and it was really touch and go. So I think a big part of the thought process for 2012 was let's get this training preparation perfect. Let's not risk sickness or anything like that. So let's just bunker down in Australia control our environment, train properly, prepare properly um, and get to the Olympics with a full bill of health um, and, you know, a a good solid block of training under me. So between March in um, 2012 and August, which were the Olympics, I didn't race once. Um, And so I remember racing the first relay at... uh, at the London Olympics, I swam the heats and uh, I was anchoring that. And I think I was like 47, five or six anchor leg. And I got out of the pool and I was like, holy shit, that felt really hard. Like I hadn't raced in five months and I hadn't been exposed to that environment. Mm. And when I look back on that 2012 preparation and potentially what went wrong in the lead up to uh, that Olympic Games, um, I think that was 
the big mistake that that um, I made and we made as a team was to not expose myself to any racing for five or six months um, and and to kind of yeah be sheltered from that that um, stimulus that you need um, around racing and, and the one thing that I was always jealous of um, America is that they got that high level racing quite frequently be, be it through NCAAs or their trials where there's probably an increased um, uh, environmental intensity yep. because of the, the depth of talent there um, you know I, I didn't get exposed to that that year and that I think that ended up being quite detrimental mm-hmm. to that preparation yeah mate I, I would 100% agree I've experienced the same things myself I mean I trained and, and competed in America and then when I came back and went through that whole process myself um, I never felt fully prepared as I, as I wanted to be at some of the bigger meets in terms of, you know, the world champs and Olympics by just not getting that exposure during the winter months that we were in uh, back in Australia. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I, ha- I asked a couple of my teammates um, to, I said I was going to be interviewing you and I was going to be talking to you and, um, and I asked a couple of my 2000 teammates to give me some, uh, some, some questions. So a couple of them responded um, you'll know a couple of these people, but Grant Hackett's Grant Hackett said, um, did anyone guide or mentor or help you properly in 2012? Or were you just, was it just this, the same team that you had around you? Or was there anyone else that came in to try and guide you through that uh, Olympic period? Yeah, it was pretty much just the same team. Um, the, the first thing, the first person that I brought into my team after 2012 was a mind coach um, to, to get that kind of psychology side down pat. Um, but yeah, it was the same team as 2011. Um, I think a, f- a few things played into that. So it was my first Olympic game. So I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, sure. people told me it's different. You need, you need more support. You need, um, you know, a different preparation. I kind of thought, you know, I've done it for 2011. Mm-hmm what could be so different. Um, and, and it was Brandt's first Olympic games as well as a coach. So he was kind of learning on the fly a bit as well. So we were both um, inexperienced in, in that sense. Um, I think the thing that I really um, needed to manage in that year was one, the psychology, but two, the external kind of noise that I hadn't experienced before. Mm-hmm. So I think leading into that Olympic games, I had like, 10 major sponsors i probably did five or six tv ads that were on tv every night yep. every time i saw a newspaper or a magazine i was front or back page mm-hmm. um the noise around um around the pool or, or outside of the pool for me became really deafening to a point where my whole life i'd never really thought too much about swimming i'd finish my last lap, I'd go home and I'd never think about swimming again until I hit the water the next day. Yep. 2012 got so crazy that um, I couldn't like get away from it. It was mm-hmm. just everywhere. And mm-hmm. every time I left the house, people would be asking for photos or autographs or saying, you know, can't wait to, to watch you at, um, at the Olympics and stuff like that. And so the head noise for me, or not the head noise, but just the, the noise around um you know my life became really deafening yeah and I, I that was the thing i struggled most with leading into london was um i couldn't get away from swimming i couldn't be who i normally was um and 
the Olympics kind of became this like impending um, event that was like getting closer and closer and closer. And rather than me being more and more excited about it, I was like, oh, the Olympics are only like two months away now because five people just reminded me of it in the shopping center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I really, in hindsight, it would have been great to bring in the mind coach and the psychologist back then. Um, I probably could have um, handled some of those uh, sponsorship deals and the like better or maybe, yeah, juggled that a little bit better. Sure. Um, but in hindsight, look, I have no regrets because... We're all just doing the best we could, you know. Yeah. We, we didn't know what we were in for. Um, I didn't know, Brent didn't know, and we'd had a team that had been successful in the past, so we kind of didn't think we needed to bring in anyone external. Mm. Mate, listen, I uh, my first Olympics was the Sydney Olympics. I grew up about 20 minutes from the Olympic Stadium, and everybody, yeah. you know, once I made the Olympic team for the next five months, everybody I passed in the streets would be like, I can't wait to watch you win the Olympics, you know, and it was just like this constant Crazy. reminders, like right in, right in your face. So I can, yeah. uh, I can relate 100% to, to what you're saying. Um, what I didn't do is I didn't, I didn't win a silver medal, which you did. So <laughs> you, you did a lot better than I did. But, um, you know, that was one of the things that Jeff Hugel asked. Uh, he, he sent a question. He was like, did he underestimate the pressure of an Olympic Games? And I think to an extent we all do at some point, you know, especially your first one. I think that's pretty normal to, to underestimate how big it is. And especially going in as, as um, you know, such a, 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 a probably short favorite that you were. Like you, were, you dominated the world the year before. Um, I'm sure everybody was just expecting you to walk in and, and destroy the whole field. So um, I don't blame you at all for underestimating the pressure in terms of, of that. Um, you know, let me, let me see. Uh, Ian Thorpe asked, um, how much did the hype around uh, the performance affect you, if at all? And you kind of just ex you know, talked about that as well. I talked to Eamon, um, and he won the silver in the 100 freestyle in um the, the you know four years before you did um so how do you feel about your silver medal what's your opinion on it yeah it's an interesting one i think my opinion on it has changed over time so um you know as soon as that race finished and i got out of the pool it was like the biggest disappointment in the world for me um mm -hmm. you know if, if a hole in the world could have opened up and swallowed me whole i would have been very appreciative at the time Mm -hmm. um, but I remember looking back on it um, and the, I, I guess it's hard to explain the pressure, the pressure of that race was like was something else I hadn't experienced. And the first few swims of that week, you know, I was not great. I think I was swimming like 48 lows and everyone was in panic mode within the Australian team kind of around me. Everyone was like, um, oh my God, you know, this is our one chance of a gold medal and he's not swimming well. It got really crazy really quickly. And looking back on it now, I'm actually really proud that I swam 47.5, I think it was. Yeah, 47.53, yeah. Um, yeah, and well, I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, that was a really good swim because um, I was feeling, again, I was feeling really ordinary in the water um, in the lead up. I hadn't raced at all. I wasn't sleeping. I was absolutely panicking about that race. Like I was super nervous. Um, 
the race itself, um, you know, again, I, I kind of stuck to my race plan pretty well, I felt at the time. And I, I kind of did all but that last little bit of what I did needed to, to win the race. Um, and I knew, you know, I can always sleep easy at night knowing that I um, did the best that I could on the day. If, if I had have given up that last five metres or if I had have um, not put in 100% effort, I, I think I'd feel differently about it. But now looking back on it, I'm like, man, I'm actually pretty proud of that. It was a crazy scenario, a crazy time in my life. Um, it wasn't the outcome I wanted at the time and it wasn't the outcome that people expected of me. Um, but, you know, I think all in all, um, when I look back on my career, it, it has to be seen um, as, as a highlight because um, under the circumstances and, you know, in, in hindsight, I think it wasn't, as bad a performance as I judged it at the time. And probably, look, it, it was a really weird scenario going to 2012 where if, if I had won that Olympic gold medal, um, it would have been a bit of a case of like, what now? Um, like I spoke about, I always liked having something to chase. Sure. I, I could look back and envisage, envisage that I may have, retired like the next year um i don't know it would have been hard to keep going for me um so it probably did extend my career a little bit um but i think in life in general now it actually has given me a bit more of a hunger and a will to succeed at everything i do because of that one event um and so i'm actually in some ways grateful um that, that it's it's given me a mindset that um is a lot more proactive now sure when you think of the champion in, in that race nathan adrian um you know and, and obviously we all we all go through our, our own pressures and we all are challenged in a different way at the olympic games um what do you do you think he's a worthy champion what do you think of him in terms of you know taking home that gold medal i think he's a great swimmer i think the big uh, yeah i think he's a worthy champion for sure um one thing that Nathan Adrian has always been across his career is consistent. Mm -hmm. um, it's really impressive the level that he has maintained for such an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. I think he's probably had some great people around him managing his career, his workload, his life outside of the pool really well. And he's certainly achieved longevity that most sprinters aren't able to. He stayed at the top for a really long time. And what, kind of has become evident over time. Probably the last World Championships um, kicked this trend a little, but if you can be around 47 low at a major meet, you're probably going to win that meet. And for, for him, what he was always able to do was to get to that level where he needed to be at that major meet each year. So he was there or about. Um, I don't look back on that race and think it was me versus Nathan Adrian as such. I, ne I never look back at that race and, and really think about Nathan at all. The only things I ever think about is um, the, the factors that kind of I wasn't able, that I didn't control properly um, to get the best out of my performance. And those things were kind of the sleep, um, the, 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 prep, the racing in my preparation and, and those other things. Um, you know, if it wasn't Nathan beating me, um, you know, I, I would have been fine with someone else beating me because it was a, a case of I felt at that time um, me beating myself um, psychologically. Um, but the impressive thing about Nathan was, you know, he continued to be there each year after that. Um, mm -hmm. He stayed at the top for a really long time. Um, you know, I haven't, 
I don't know him that well, to be honest. So I don't know what sort of training he does or what sort of, um, you know, lifestyle he has outside of swimming. But he, he was able to maintain that longevity and, and consistency at the top. So I, I think he's proven his worth for sure. Yeah. Did you, um, did you, were you thinking about the outcome before the race? Like, was that something that you, you look back on and think, oh man, I was yeah. really, I was really thinking about that gold medal before I went out and actually went through the process? Probably the thing I was thinking about more and, and what's even worse is what would happen if I didn't win? That was um, my biggest fear going into that race was failure. Um, the, at the start of that week, the way I swam in, in the relay and the way my body felt, I was like, wow, I, I might not even get a medal here. Like I felt really bad in the water that week for some reason. Um, it was probably because of all that, that external stuff. So I started thinking about what happens if I don't win. Um, and that, I think, uh, is one of probably the worst things you can, um, you can think about before a race. Um, but again, I, I'm kind of proud looking back on it that at that last moment when I hit the water, I kind of was able to bring it back as best I could to race plan and let's just execute these things. Um, and that still allowed me to be right in there with the, with the shot at that gold medal. Yeah. Mate, what do you think in terms of um, confidence and um, bravado and expectation and those things? You know, there, there's a level that you need in order to get where you, you got, you know, in, in order to be a world champion, in order to be an Olympic medalist in the 100 freestyle you got to have a very strong belief in yourself and you've got to be very confident and you, and you've also got to have an arrogance of some, some sort, you know? So how much of that do you think um, is, is important? And, and, you know, let, let's say the next generation of sprint freestylers, what do they, what do you feel like in, if you were going to talk to them, what do they need and what do they need to drop? Or, you know, what, what do they need as part of their arsenal? And what do you think? Hey, you, you probably don't need that. It's probably going to hurt you more than it helps you. Yeah, so the kind of whenever I'm asked about confidence um, in swimming, I kind of have the same response. So I never won a race in my life that I didn't think I could win leading into it. Mm -hmm. So if I went into a race and thought I can't win this, I guarantee you I didn't win this race. <laughs> Even on the way up when I was young and I was coming through, I always just gave myself that chance. I thought I, I could win this. You know, if, if everything goes right here, I could win this. There was times... I came to the Beijing Olympic trials as a 16 year old and came 52nd in the hundred freestyle. Just before I walked out to swim those heats, I was like, ah, today could be my day. Like as a 16 year old, I could get it right today and I could win this. And, um, Love it. I maintained that right through my career. Even the last races of my career, like when I was pretty busted up physically, I remember sitting in the marshalling area and going, this is, I'm going to turn it around today. I'm going to win this race. And, Every bit of form, everything I'd done in training, my competitors, people that knew me best, everything else was telling me otherwise. But I always thought to myself, no, you know what? I'm going to win this race and, and I'm good enough to win this race. And that always, essentially, I believe, it always gave me the, the, the opportunity to win. Whereas I see so many young kids go into races and, and so many other swimmers and, uh, you know, I used to thrive off it when, when other young swimmers in Australia would, would race me. They'd say, oh, you know, James Magnuson's in this race. Um, I'm racing for second. 
and they'd say it in the media and I'd think beautiful, you know, that's, that's the perfect, that's all I need. Um, So the one thing that I always say to other swimmers, to other sprinters, you have to believe that you can win that race if you're any chance of winning it. So there's a, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, but I, I just believe that arrogance is confidence without ability. Um, so if you've got the ability and, and um, you believe you can win, I'll only ever consider that as confidence, not arrogance. And um, anyone that says a, a sprinter in um, any sport or an, an explosive athlete in any sport is arrogant, uh, doesn't know what it takes to be the best in the world at something that lasts for less than a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have, and, and, and you would know, and having some yourself and the swimmers you've coached, you have to have confidence and bravado. If you go out there with your head down, slumped over, walking to the blocks, all nervous, mm. the race is over. Mm. Forget about it. You may as well turn around and walk back to that dressing shed. So if you can't look up, look your opponents in the eye, look at that crowd and say, I'm the man today, forget about it. And, and that's, um, that's something that I think I was able um, to learn early in my career and, and something that served me really well and something that I saw other athletes who were, were just as talented and, and trained just as hard as me never grasp the concept of and therefore never realize their full potential. Yeah. Matt, I agree. Everything you said, I completely agree with all of it. Um, there was a time right before the Sydney Olympics. I broke the Australian record at the trials and, and I swam faster than anyone had ever swam and, and, I, and I felt amazing. I, I felt untouchable, just kind of like what you're describing right now. And going to the Sydney Olympics, um, you know, the, the media was, was hungry for that. Who, who's next? Who's the next guy? And, and as swimmers, we're, com- we're competing against each other. I'm competing against Ian Thorpe for media attention and Thorpe is competing against Grant Hackett for media attention. So we're all trying to grab a little piece of media and we all, we want sponsorship. We want money when we want income. So I remember I got baited into um, a conversation with a journalist going into the Sydney Olympics and, and she asked me, you know, did I think I could win? Well, you know, my, my opinion of myself is, of course, I, I think I can win. You know, like, I, I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm better than, um, you know, Alexander Popov, you know, and I verbally said it in the media. And then next minute, this story comes out, you know, Hawk believes he can beat Popov. And, and I remember at the time thinking to myself, shit, like, what did I just say? Like, I remember <laughs> feeling it, you know, like I wanted to feel that, but I didn't want the whole world to yeah. know it, you know? So all of a sudden yeah, the world, yeah, yeah. and then Popoff reads it and Popoff's like, okay, little son of a bitch, we'll show you. <laughs> and I remember just carrying that pressure into the Olympics. So was there times like that for you where you felt like, look, I should have just shut up and just kept it to myself um, at times? Yeah, for sure. And it's something that I learned later in my career was to internalize some of that confidence. Um, the hard thing again about that Olympic Games for me was that it popped up when I was so young and I'd only just achieved that um, notoriety and, and that kind of, um, for lack of a better word, celebrity status here in Australia. Yeah. The other really unfortunate thing about that Olympic Games um, when I look back on it was that I was the only one really in a position to win a gold medal um an individual gold medal mm-hmm. um it would have been nice to share that load a little bit and that's something that i look back on some of those earlier teams 
And I think, wow, it would have been really great if, say, a, a, um, a Liesl Jones or a Libby Trickett were at their peak of their career at the same time as me. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, instead of only being me on the front page, there's a Liesl on the front page, there's Libby on the front page, there's mm-hmm. a Steph Rice on the front page. Somehow all these weird things aligned, and it happened a few th- times in my career, all these weird things aligned where I was the only gold medalist at that World Championships the year before. And um, uh, I was the only kind of um, gold medal hopeful leading into that um, London Olympics. So it was just, again, this perfect storm of like, I could not get away from it. Every, every journalist was saying, um, you know, we expect you to win. Do you expect to win? And probably out of more ignorance or, or, or naive, naivety, I think, is... I just used to say, yeah, it's all of them. Um, yeah. I think yeah. I'm going to win. Yeah, I think I'm going to win. Do I think I'm the best? Yeah, I think I'm the best. Um, realistically, at that time, you know, I was the best. So it wasn't like I was shit talking or anything like that. I was just being yeah. completely honest. And that honesty throughout my career has got me into a lot of trouble at times, not only, um, you know, when it comes to, to, to my self-confidence, but to being honest with, um, other people in the team and, and staff members in the team and some of the decisions that have been made uh, around the team at the time, uh, at times. But that honesty, I think, is, is also something that gives me this real... Um, uh, it allows me to sleep at night. I, I know looking back on my career, I never bullshitted anyone. Um, you know, I never went into a race saying, I'm just happy to be here. I just want to participate. But, you know, I hate, I hate, hate, hate watching TV. Mm. that's you know a gun loses a race or something and he goes you know what i'm just happy to be here mm. no man you're not happy to be there you train 365 days of the year to win you, you train to dominate no one's happy to be there yeah. um and so i actually you know looking back on my career and you know that honesty like i said got me in a lot of trouble and i said i thought i could win that i was going to win and, and in, in that particular instance i didn't but now I sleep really easy at night knowing, you know, I am who I am. I've always been true to myself and I've always been true um, to the Australian public. Well, listen, mate, I, I love it. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's real and I think it's honest. And yeah, I've been caught a few times saying the, the same thing in terms of what I feel about myself. I mean, you, you, you're right. You don't stand a chance if you don't think it. And, um, and you can't mask it at times when somebody asks you a direct question, it's just how you feel, you know, whether you like it or not, but you're not going to win every race. You know, I mean, the reality is you, you race the best in the world who had trained just as much as you did. And you lost by one, one hundredth of a second, which you can't differentiate something like that. So, um, you know, you, you're, you're, but then you come back the next year and you win the world title again. So talk to me about in terms of the disappointment from 2012 and some of the, turmoil that surrounded you there how did you bounce back and then come back and win the world title the next year so that world title in 2013 it was probably partly of my own doing but that to me felt like the highest pressure race of my career it felt like london compounded again because there'd been a lot of fallout from the olympic games here in australia there'd been a few controversies Again, I could not get away from the front page of the paper. I could not get out of the media. Um, People started saying, um, you know, here's a splash in the pan. Um, He can't do it again. Um, All stuff like this, which kind of um, 
heaps pressure on that race in yep. in Barcelona. The thing I did differently in 2013, um, I went over to Europe and I raced leading up to that world championships. I raced um, a few times in, in the lead up. I, I raced the French Open. We went and trained in in Europe, um, in um, the south of Spain. Um, and I was in form leading into that world championships. So this time there's all this pressure, there's all this expectation. It feels like it even compounded to me on top of what, what happened in London. But going into this race, I know I'm in form. I know I'm swimming well because I've raced in the lead up and I'm, I'm confident in my own abilities again. The 2013 world championship final is probably um, in my mind the craziest race I've ever been involved in and in terms of races that, that I like to watch of um, the 100 freestyle I think it probably holds up as one of the craziest um, in, in history uh, so uh, Vladimir Morozov was out in one of the outside lanes and there was a bit of talk going into this world champs um, the way to beat James Magnuson is to go out super fast in the mm. first 50 mm. just gap him so much that he can't catch you on the way back mm. and uh and, and that was pretty commonly um, a pretty commonly held opinion amongst all my competitors. Mm. So Morozov goes out 21.9 first 50 meters of the hundred. Ouch. Yeah. And I mean, like, Ooh. realistically, that's probably like a 21.4 feet uh, to, to hand touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an all-out 50, baby. It's all-out, yeah. It's <laughs> insane. It takes really big balls. Yeah. Um, but I remember turning at the 50 meter mark and uh i was pretty happy with my first 50 felt light felt good and all i could see was this guy's feet already almost at the five meter mark on the way out holy shit i don't know who that is but someone is so far ahead of me (laughs) and uh the way the race just panned out everyone went out really fast i think i turned about sixth or seventh I was in lane six, so I couldn't see everyone as well as I'd like to because I was used to being in lane four. The wash on the way home in that second 50 was insane. Like in a lot of ways, people were right. The the way to beat someone that's really strong on the back end is to go out fast and is to just drench them in wash so they have to Mm. swim through that wave on the second 50. So Mm. all those tactics realistically worked. Um, And I I don't think I took the lead until about two meters from the finish line. Uh, <laughs> it was just, uh, yeah, it was just a crazy race, but um, I managed to get the job done. And, and I think the difference was that uh, you know, I'd done that racing in the lead up and I was mm. in form. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. So it must've been a huge relief then to just uh, touch the wall and see, see the one next to your name. Eh? Yeah, that was a massive relief. I think, um, you know, I used to love celebrating straight after a race. Mm. I'm just going to shut that door. <laughs> the dogs are fired up back there. <laughs> there you go. You got shut out. Um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a huge relief when I finished that race. Um, you know, like I said, I, I'm used to celebrating when I finish, but I remember my first thing was just to lie in the pool and kind of try and gather my thoughts and, and um, understand what had just happened. Um, that was the culmination of a year of pressure of um, scrutiny in the media back here in Australia. And I felt like, um, you know, I kind of um, proved them all wrong. So yeah, it was probably the second favorite moment of my career after that um, Shanghai world champs. 
Yeah, mate, that's awesome. Well, listen, there's so much we can talk about. We've been going for a while now, and I really appreciate your time on this. I could talk to you for hours. Um, fascinating <laughs> stuff. But um, let, let's let's finish with this then. Um, you probably see a lot of yourself in in Kyle Chalmers, right? Like he he kind of swims very similar to you. Are, are you are you friendly with him? Do you guys know each other? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's yeah a lot of similarities can be drawn um, in in the way that we race. Um, and kind of the trajectory of his career as well, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Have you, have you had a chance to kind of mentor him through, through stuff or anything like that? Not really. So he's based over in Adelaide. Um, so, you know, we, we don't see each other much. I am in touch with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I haven't been um, kind of engaged in any kind of mentor role through Swimming Australia or the team. Um, or anything like that in general but you know you know if the opportunity ever arose I've definitely got quite a bit of knowledge to impart on some of those younger guys Um, but I think I was in this kind of momentum at the moment that that started in Rio where he's uh, just gone from strength to strength Um, obviously he's going to have his work cut out for him um, with Caleb Dressel in that 100 freestyle um, but yeah, it's a, it's a super exciting time for sprint freestyle. I feel like it's really finally gone to the next level. I, I felt like it really stagnated probably post 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went that 47 one, mm-hmm. it kind of stagnated for, uh, I guess the best part of probably seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as a swimming fan, I'm super excited to see that hundred freestyle progress again to see that 47 barrier challenged and, and beaten um, by, by Caleb um, and to see where, where these guys can go. It's, it's so exciting to have two top level guys peaking at the exact same time. So um, I'm expecting that to, well, for me, that's going to be the race of the Olympics. If they go ahead is that hundred freestyle. Yeah. Well, mate, listen, I, I coached, uh, I was lucky to, to coach the guy that broke the world record in 2009. I'm ready for that thing to go yeah. down. I want, I want it to be gone. So um, I'm excited. Who's your prediction then? Or what's, what's your outcome prediction for 2021 in the 100 freestyle? Yeah, look, it's, it'd be a brave person to, to pick against Caleb Dressel after that world, world title. He, he swims a really interesting 100 where he kind of has that crazy start that no one can match. Yep. And then it looks like he really pulls his foot off the accelerator, that first 50, mm-hmm. then he accelerates into and out of that turn. My thought process would be if Kyle can be within, if Kyle can be at Kyle's knees when he comes off off the he comes up off the breakout in that second 50, yep. uh, he can win. If, if Caleb Dressel gaps Kyle on that turn and underwater at the 50-meter mark, and it's anywhere more than a, a kind of half body length, then he, he can't be beaten from there. He also has that crazy finish where he goes hypoxic, that last kind of 12 metres or so. He really draws out that hypoxic mm-hmm. and he gets that extra spurt. Where in the past, when if Kyle's right next to someone, that's where he'll beat them in that last little bit. Mm-hmm. At the World Champs last year, we saw Caleb go hypoxic that last part and almost hold Kyle at bay. Um, so it's going to be a crazy race. Look, I think Kyle's, um, Kyle's up against it, um, but he's shown that he pulls out those big swims when he needs to. So mm-hmm. Caleb's going to really have to hold his shit together um, come that Olympic final. Do you think the world record will be broken at the Olympic Games or before that? Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah before. I, I don't think the world record will be, be broken in that Olympic final. 
I think the world record will be broken probably at the trials, at mm-hmm. the American trials, mm-hmm. probably again in the heats or the semis or a lead off of the relay. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, when it comes to the Olympic final or, or, or the, the, the final at a major meet, it may be a product of the fact that everyone is swimming 47 points. So that's a, there's that extra level of wash in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be the fact that to break a world record, I think it's really nice to just be out in front in clean water and, and dictate the race um, and, and swim on your own terms. Mm-hmm. So Caleb's much more likely to have that at the American Nationals rather than um, in that Olympic final with Kyle next to him. Um, but I'm pretty confident that that world record will get broken in the lead up to the Olympic Games. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm kind of with you. I feel the same way, you know. So um, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Look, Caleb's an exceptional athlete. I've seen him swim so many times, and um, I actually recruited him. I went to his house a couple of times when he was a young, 17 year old, and tried to get him to swim for me, and and uh, missed out on that one. But. Um, <laughs> But he, uh, he's an exceptional athlete. But listen, Kyle's the Olympic champ, and he knows how to get it done under pressure. And, and I've seen his back end. It's, it's, it's crazy. If he can just, like you said, if he can stick that first 50 where he's within half a body length off that turn and just, just be at his hip, I think, I think he can get it. You know, but, uh, Both incredible athletes. I think it's going to be an, uh, an amazing race if it takes place. So I'm really hoping it does. So, uh, mate, listen, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for it. Uh, this has been really intriguing to me. And, um, very thankful yeah thanks for having me be happy to do it again if you want to hear more <laughs> absolutely i'm sure people love to hear more i mean um they they, they kill over this stuff mate so um we, we come back maybe and, and go through some of your favorite sets next time people love sets for whatever reason i don't know why. <laughs> um listen mate appreciate it uh take care good luck with the business all right yeah cheers brett all right take care mate bye